This is me in Georgia. Okay, good to have you with us. Still back in Gettysburg is Stephen, right? Stephen, you're still there, right? I am still holding on the fort here in Gettysburg. Excellent. Uh, Jeff is normally with us today, but I'm not sure if he's having technical problems today or not, but Jeff is not with us right now. We also have Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, who'll be managing and feeding in your questions as they and your comments as they come in today. Hi, Noah. Hello. And I'm your host, Drew DeGrotto from Homesdale, Pennsylvania. Welcome, everybody. Now, if you're joining us uh, from the Zoom app, please open the Q&A window um, to send in your questions. And Stephen, how do they reach us if they're watching us live from your Bible, your, your, your Facebook? If you're watching on my Facebook live uh, on, on my page, uh, please just leave your, com your question in the comment box below, and we'll try to get to that as soon as we can. Okay, we have every week, there's always something a little messed up that I get a little messed up in. <laughs> I apologize. That we're not professional broadcasters. We're here to talk about the Bible. It's proof that we're live. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. See, I almost called you Tim Smeltzer. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> um, and you know what? I didn't mention it, I don't think, in, in the intro, but we do have a, a, a new segment to the show uh, that we want to add to the show called in the Bible or not, and I just bring that up as a little teaser, guys, because we're not going to do it right now, but we'll get to that after a couple of the questions that we do want to get to that we uh, haven't been able to get to in the past. So, so Scott, I think we wanted to start with the, the question about what's the difference between um, faith and belief, right? Uh, yeah, so a question was submitted. Um about is there a difference between having faith and having a belief? And the, when we're talking about the words of Scripture, uh, there's not. And one of the best ways to illustrate it is, now if you're, if you're talking about having, is there a difference between having faith in Jesus Christ as opposed to having some belief in something else? Of course there's a difference. But the words in, in, in Scripture are from the same word uh, in Greek. A good way to illustrate that is looking at Romans 10, 17. Um, so, Drew or Stephen, if one of you would take whatever translation you have in front of you and look up Romans 10, 17, I'm going to read it from the American Standard. From the American Standard, it says this, So belief cometh of hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. I've got the English Standard Version, and it says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And now somebody says, well, which is the correct translation? It, it, both of them are. Uh, faith and belief are, are the same thing. And even if we wanted to have a nuance in English and say, well, I think faith is more this and belief is more that, in, in Greek, it's the same word. So pistos, you can translate it either faith or belief. If you got a little stream of water running in your backyard and you say it's a stream or a brook, you know, uh, we are, are we a creek or a creek. Uh, <laughs> one word. Regional difference. Yeah, there's one word in Greek and it's pistos, and it's you can translate it faith or belief, and um, faith or belief. Excuse me. And the verb is the same word, pistuo, 
Uh, and you could, it's I believe, or you could maybe push it in the direction of I have faith. Uh, but we usually don't use faith as a verb. Right. So, so what you're saying, Scott, is this is a, uh, one of those instances in translation where yeah. the original language has one word for right. both concepts. But in English, our word faith and belief, sometimes we use those in slightly right. different senses. But right. in the Bible, we can't push that English sense because it's the same Greek word behind exactly. faith and belief. Exactly. Which segments into my next, our next thought was the religious word, our religious word, why are religious words confusing um, when they weren't confusing in the Greek original, in the original Greek, right? So why are they confusing to us today? And there's other words besides faith and belief. So go ahead and get into that. Yeah. So the New Testament is written with words that people understood. They were usually words that people used in everyday life. And some of those words ended up never translated, like the word baptize. Baptize is just our putting the English language letters with a form of the the Greek word baptizo. Uh, And if it was translated, if you were going to translate the Greek word baptize, what would we have there? Immerse. 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 Dip. That's what that word meant, and they knew it meant that. For instance, if you go through um, and, and, and look at other Greek writings, they use the word baptize for all sorts of things. When Alexander the Great's men were marching through an area where they had to walk through water, it said they were baptized up to the waist. Uh, when a ship sunk, they said the ship baptized. In, uh, is it Aesop's Fables or Aesop's Fables? Probably depends on where you're from or what you grew up with, kind of like Crick or Creek. (laughs) Well, I'm going to say it confidently, and then maybe people think, oh, I've been pronouncing it wrong. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) He's in his fables, whichever it is. And uh, in one of those, there's a parable of a monkey and a dolphin. And the monkey is riding with the dolphin. The dolphin decides to drown the monkey because he kind of deserves it. And so it says the dolphin, in the original Greek, it's the dolphin baptizes and it drowns the monkey. So when they heard the word baptize, guess what they understood it meant? Immerse. Going under the water. And if Bibles had just translated immerse, people would know, oh, the Bible says be immersed. But if you grow up in a religious denomination that does something other, if you grow up, for instance, Roman Catholic, when a Roman Catholic hears the word baptize, what do they automatically think of? Sprinkling? Sprinkling a baby. Yeah, sprinkling a baby. That's, and that is not what people in the first century would have thought of. Uh, and so there's some other words. What are some other words like that with, that we use? When we use the word only in religious settings, then our particular religious setting tends to define how we see that word. What Whereas in the first century the authors used everyday words that people already knew what they meant and our translations and uses of them only in religion tends to bind people's concepts of those words. What would be some other examples, guys? Yeah, church. Church. Yeah. Yeah, like we'll say, you know, 
um, oh, you, you, you turn at the big red church. Is that something that they would have said <laughs> in the first century? Not at all. Yeah, because what does the word church mean? Assembly. Yeah. Actually, actually it, it refers to people, not structures. And so, yeah, it's a group of people. And in the New Testament, the, the Greek word is ekklesia. In the New Testament, is that word only used of Jesus' people? No, no. In fact, it's used, it's used at least, well, once in, in Ephesus, referring to a mob. Yeah, let's, let's turn there. So Acts 19, um, Stephen, you want to kind of set the stage for us for what's going on in Ephesus here? Sure. So Acts chapter 19, Paul is on, he's uh, just started the, the third, his third journey, and he's come to Ephesus. He's been preaching there for a while, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And uh, there's a man named Demetrius, a silversmith. He's made his living making these little statues of the goddess Diana. And uh, what ends up happening is they stir up the crowds because Paul and what he was teaching rightfully was to not worship these idols, uh, to not do that. And of course, not just religiously, but in his business is very bad for business. If no one's worshiping the idols, no one wants to buy his silver stuff. And so they stir up this huge assembly, this crowd, this mob, if you will. And so that's kind of what's going on in Acts 19, where this word gets used several times. Yeah. So while they're yelling, great is Diana, great is Diana, this mob that Drew described for us here, um, Paul wanted to go in there. And Luke says in verse 32, some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. The ecclesia. Why didn't they use the word church there? You know, if you it and it would throw us if the word church was there, but it doesn't throw if you if it had always been assembly. So if we're reading, and so they're crying out, "Great is Diana," but not everybody understood for the church was in confusion. <laughs> we we wouldn't understand. But if we read what they read, it would be like they would see Jesus said, "Upon this rock, I'm going to build my assembly." You know, uh, Jesus is the head of. His people. It's a group of people. Jesus is the head of his group of people, his congregation, his assembly. Uh, Paul to the uh, congregation, the group of people, the assembly of uh, God in this city or that city. Then when you just see it as a word that means a group of people, yeah, that's a group of people. And then uh, Stephen mentioned a couple of other times it's used here. Uh, This is when the town clerk stands up and he says, listen. You need to quiet down, and if you seek about, this is verse 39, Acts 19.39, if you seek about other matters, it should be handled in the regular assembly, assembly. regular ecclesia. And then in verse 41, he dismissed that. assembly. Yeah, ecclesia. So you, you got a herd of cows, you got a covey of quail, you got a flock of sheep, you got a group of people, and Jesus has his group of people, and his group of people listen to him. There's other groups of people. Uh, so, yeah, church is one of those words. Uh, what's another one? How about bishop? Yes, that's a good one. Uh, the King James will have bishop, where most translations will have what word? Overseer. Overseer. 
Some Bibles translate it this way. Some translate it that way. There's an advantage for understanding. There's a better advantage to the word overseer because can you just, well, let's take the Greek word. What is the Greek word there behind both bishop and overseer? Isn't it something like episkopos or something like that? Yeah, episkopos. So epi means over and scope means to see, like telescope, microscope. And so it's very well translated by overseer. And one of the advantages of that simpler translation is, can people who work on a job understand what an overseer is? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a guy that oversees things. That doesn't mean that he oversees things the way a shepherd should oversee the church or for the same motives or other things, but you get the idea that it involves oversight. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Scott. You threw another word in there. What did I say? Shepherd. Oh, yeah. Which was the second part of the bishop I was going to talk about because shepherd works together with it. Ah, yeah. Because in Acts 20, and let, let's give an analogy here, and then we'll see it in Scripture. I'll give the analogy so people know where we're going. Analogy won't prove it, but then we'll look to Scripture and see if that's true. If we're talking about interacting with some emergency officials after we've called 911, and we say, well, the policeman, the officer, the cop, well, we're talking about three different people. No, we're talking about the same guy. Same guy. Right. Same you position. Different words that can refer to the same guy. There are different Greek words used to describe the role of the overseer or bishop. And a good text to see that from would be Acts 20. Because in Acts 20, verse 17, by the way, this is right after I'm still on the same opening as our ecclesia. So that works. Uh, but Acts 20, after uh, uh, we're now... Uh, at another point later in his journey. And in verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders, elders of the church. Here's one of those words again. The the word, this word in Greek is uh, presbuteros, and it means an older person. And it's the same word. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? There was the young wasteful son. Guess what the older son was? The Presbyteros son. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, isn't that the root of the word like presbytery or something like yes. that? Yeah. The Presbyterian church takes their term from that Greek word, and the Episcopalian church takes their word from the Episcopos word. And it has to do with one is trying to do it after a presbyter model and one is trying to do it after a bishop model. And what both need to be doing is going back and looking at the biblical model. Hmm. And what we see here, uh, I've probably made a little bit of a mess of this, but we'll see if we can put it together quickly and you guys help me. Paul calls for the elders. Sometimes this word is translated presbytery. That's leaving it in the Greek. A lot simpler to put elder because that's what it meant, somebody older. When he called for the elders, they came there, and what did he tell them to do in verse 28? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, is the ESV. And then he tells them to 
care for the church of God is the ESV. And the word care for or feed in some translations shepherd is the word for shepherd. It's the verb of shepherd. So he called the elders. When the elders got there, he said, the Holy Spirit made you overseers and it's your job to shepherd the flock. All of those three terms are simple. Called the, he called the older men of that church, reminded them of their job as overseers to shepherd the flock. The more ecclesiastical religious use only terms would be he called for the presbytery, told them they were bishops, and they should pastor the flock. But if you translate it that way, some of the disadvantages are everybody knows what a shepherd is. Not everybody knows what a pastor is because that's older English. Everybody knows what somebody older is, but what's a presbytery? Everybody can understand that an overseer oversees, but what's a bishop? And so you t with the word bishop, you tend to go to what you've seen as a bishop. And again, if you were raised Roman Catholic, what does the word bishop mean to you? A particular official in the Catholic Church with a particular thing. That dresses a certain way, has a certain hat, and is over a certain number of people. And that's yeah. not the way it was. So, Actually, it was over a certain number of people uh, throughout the diocese. Yeah, you can't even say the word. Diocese. That's it. I couldn't say that word. Yeah. Uh, right here, the here, he's talking about them to take care or pastor over the ecclesia of God there, your, your, your flock. Yeah. Now, that goes into another subject matter, but it is tied in a little bit to it. Yeah, and so like a, a simple translation of verse 28 would be, you know, the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the group that belongs to the Lord. We've got a question from the audience. Uh, that uh, that question from Jenny, who asks, "Why do so many people refer to the preacher as a pastor?" Oh, I'm so glad that question was asked because I, I was going to bring it up because people refer to me here where I live. Oh, he's the pastor at the church down there, and I have to. It's it's difficult to explain to him. So go ahead, Scott. Give us some input on that. All right. Well, the word pastor shows up and it's the same. So where in the New Testament is the word pastor used? Does that mean one of the Timothy letters? It's one time not, you know, people call Timothy and Titus the pastoral epistles. Right. But that's, not, that's not in the, in, in the text there. First Peter 5. I'm in the in in most Bibles in the New Testament that we see the word pastor. Where is it at? Um, is it not First Peter five? No, because most translations there have shepherd. Now the Greek word is there. This this relates to the same topic. It's kind of a tricky here because the Greek word is in First Peter five. Well, wait a minute. You just you just mentioned it in Acts twenty twenty eight. Didn't you just mention it in Acts twenty twenty eight? Nope. I, I, I mentioned it, but that's not the way translators have translated it. Oh, you're asking where it's translated as yeah. pastor. In your paper Bible, do you see the word pastor? People use it all the time. 
one time, Ephesians 4.11. So let's go to Ephesians 4.11. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, which are the three of us, and some pastors and teachers. Ah, uh, see, mine says shepherds and teachers. Okay, that's better. What translation do you have there? The uh, ESV, English Standard Version. Okay, so in the ESV, undoubtedly, they've never used the word pastor in the New Testament. This is the one place where many people do, and you've got, I think, uh, a better advantage of your translation there, because when people read the word shepherd, they're hearing what Paul's original audience heard. Shepherd. If you look up in the Greek word here, uh, poimen, this is the exact same Greek word as in the Gospel of Luke where it said there were shepherds in the field by night. Interesting. It's the exact same Greek word when Jesus said, you know, I am the good shepherd. It just means shepherd. And if you look up in a dictionary, Webster's Dictionary or something, the English word shepherd, now they'll, they'll say how the word pastor is used religiously, but the origin of the word is pastor is an older English word for a shepherd. Yeah. For, for what so, it's worth, it's, it's also the Spanish word for shepherd. Okay. Uh, so, like I just did my little like uh, Bible search just now. Uh-huh. And like you said, in almost all of the modern English translations, it only shows up once in Ephesians 4.11. For that word shepherd but then my spanish version it was like 49 times <laughs> because ah. pastor is the word for shepherd so lots of times where the word shepherd is used uh it that's that's the spanish word for shepherd so. and so that's a more appropriate use in the spanish translation because you can see what it means mm-hmm. but so in, in the people that got the uh paul's writings in the first century they see well, and Luke's writing to us. They see Poimain in Luke, where there's some shepherds in the field. They see Paul telling the elders to Poimeno, uh, uh, oh, well, it'd be a different ending on the verb because of construction, but it's the same word, root word in a, in a verb form, the, the flock as overseers. And then here it mentions in the church, you have evangelists and you have shepherds. They've retained the more ecclesiastical, some translations retain the more ecclesiastical sounding pastor. And then what that does, because that's not a word we use anywhere, but in churches, people think a pastor is what their church has. So if you go to a church where there's one man and he runs the church and you call him a pastor, when you hear the word pastor, you think, oh, it's that one guy that runs the church, Stephen. Yeah. Well, speaking of words that we don't use a whole lot, the word ecclesiastical is another kind of religious use only word. Well, what does that word mean, Scott? Uh, well, ecclesiastical comes from the Greek word ecclesia. <laughs> and so, it's, yeah, it's taking a common word that meant a group of people, using it in a very religious sense, and then saying, okay, so this it's a churchy word. It is kind of what you're saying. Or some, or some, I, I, I'm not, maybe it's not here, but isn't it somewhere along the line transliterized? I don't know if it's literated. Word, right? Yeah. Yeah, like... Um, baptized. A baptized is a transliteralized word. 
transliterated. Yeah. I baptize in Greek is spelled, it would be like a beta, alpha, pi, etc. But if you change those Greek letters into our English letters, the letters of the English alphabet, um, it would be B-A-P-T-I, and then kind of a D-Z, and then a long O. So we've basically just taken that Greek word and left it in the Greek, but transliterated it into uh, English. our spelling. Do other, Now, back to what you had said, Stephen, this is interesting, about the Spanish version. Mm -hmm. Is that transliterized into the Spanish version for Shepherd? It, it is. There is the Spanish word uh, bautizar or uh, to baptize. And so it is also transliterated into Spanish. Isn't that interesting that that particular word gets transliterated, <laughs> again, the word, yeah. so many ways, so many times in different languages. I don't know if there's other languages like that. And one of the uh, one other thing to say on this subject is this. There's a lot of value in like studying Greek, but it's not as important as oftentimes preachers can make it sound. Well, the Greek says and that type of thing, because the very best tool that we can have to understand what Luke and Peter and Paul wrote in Greek, the best tool for people is an English translation of what they wrote. You've already got a Bible. That's where people that knew those languages already translated it into English for you. So sometimes you can find something further. You can, you know, flesh out a, a fine point. But the job of transliterating it, it has been done by people that did a good job of it. Uh, generally speaking, one of the weaknesses was when they didn't do their job. Instead of translating the, the Greek word baptize into an English word, they just left it in the Greek word. Mm -hmm. So when it's helpful to go back and say, well, let's look at what that word meant. Or when they use an archaic ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical term like pastor, which is not understandable in our common language, bishop, church, etc., then people tend to hear it through the, or see it through the lens of their denomination. Oh, and you're talking about Rose... You're talking baptism about immersion, you think it's that. If your denomination baptism is sprinkling, you think it's that. If in yours, pastor is the one of the group that are shepherds, but if in your denomination the pastor is the one guy and he's over the shepherds, that's different. And so it helps us to go back and try to look at a simple everyday word so that we're hearing it the way they heard it. And on these ecclesiastical terms, that's helpful. So Let's do one more word before we get into the next question. Fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know where I'm going with you on this one. This is where, and so sometimes when you have a, what we've been talking about is words that people only identify religiously. Church, bishop, uh, baptize, etc. Where back in the New Testament, those were common everyday words. You can reverse it by taking a common everyday word and trying to complicate it with the Greek. Yeah, fire. Do, do, do most people understand what fire is? Yeah. Flames, hot, yeah. white, yeah. red, yellow. That's the question. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Usually a bad thing. <laughs> well, it depends on if it's where it's supposed to be. Well, yeah. fire, if I had a fireplace, that's a good thing there. Yeah. 
if it's if it's in the kitchen and going up the walls not a good thing yeah bad thing bad thing and so the context you know um it tells you a lot if if we go in and say we're all going hunting or something and drew says scott steven start a fire we understand he means a good thing. <laughs> you know, if we pour gasoline all over the floor and light it, Drew's going to be saying, fire, fire, why did you start a fire? The context indicates it. Um, people will end up sometimes going to the Greek to just get things convoluted. And like for instance, one time at Pentecostal, we were talking about the statement from John the Baptist, uh, where John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, He's greater than me. Now, I'm baptized with water, but he's more powerful than me. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And I was shown from the context, you know, fire there is judgment because the verse before it, every tree that doesn't bring good for, forth good fruit is thrown into the fire. Which verse are you in? This is uh, Matthew 3, 11. John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I. And he, then he says at the end of verse, he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. In the context, you can see what he means. Fire is a bad thing because he says in the next verse, his fan is in his hand. He'll thoroughly cleanse the threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat and put it in the barn. But the chaff, the worthless stuff, is going to burn up in the fire. But he made this argument. He said, no, you want the you want to be baptized with fire. Because he said... Whoa, 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 whoa. Who made the argument? The Apostle John? A Pentecostal. Okay, I want to make sure that was clear. Yeah, sorry. So he said, no, I want the baptism of fire. You should want the bab to be baptized with fire. In his argument, he went to the Greek unnecessarily. He said, this is the same Greek word as in Acts 2. Or when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, tongues of fire appeared on their head. Same Greek word. Yeah. It's also the what? The same English word. Yeah, it's the same English word. <laughs> we can understand if the preacher mentions, you know, hell fire. Uh, and then later he talked about, you need to be on fire for the Lord. Those are not the same thing. Yes, it's the same word but not the same thing. So sometimes people go to the Greek when it's just as clear as can be in English. And, and they, by, by talking about the Greek, it makes it sound like, Oh, here's some special information, but there's, there's several ecclesiastical terms where many translations have either left it in the Greek or used one of these old ecclesiastical terms. And it's more helpful for us to understand what those words mean in everyday life that's the way the apostles intended to write it. Oh, good. Listen, we went through a lot of that, maybe a little bit more than uh, we, we thought we would. but uh, Probably so. Sorry. That's okay. No, no, no. We're doing good. Stephen, there was another question that was left over from yeah. last week. We had a question actually from two weeks ago where someone from the audience asked a question about women speaking and we looked at 1 Corinthians 14. Well, let's turn back over there. Um, this question was a specific scenario that they talked about that arises sometimes. And it's kind of at the end of the worship service uh, where there's announcements being made. And sometimes the person making the announcement say, are, are there any other, other announcements? And every once in a while uh, where he's at, uh, a woman would raise their hand and, you know, ask for a prayer request or, or make some sort of announcement. 
And he was saying, well, what about that scenario? Um, what, what about that in 1 Corinthians 14? So let's come back to the text and read that. First um, Corinthians 14, um, picking up at the last part of verse 33, uh, it says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a well-man to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Oh, uh, so let, let me interrupt you there. You're talking about as in all the assemblies of the saints. Right. Here's another example. That's right. This is that word ecclesia that's used in different senses. And here where it says it's shameful for a woman to speak in ecclesia, in church, um, it's used in the most, most specific sense here of when the whole church is gathered together. If you back up like to verse 23, it illustrates pretty well kind of what it's talking about here. It says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? That's the type of assembly that he's talking about here. So I think the simple answer to that scenario is, is the church assembled? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, then the guidelines from 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35 would apply. And the women should be silent in church silent in the assembly that that would be my my simple answer to to that scenario do you have any thoughts on that well i just wanted to uh, reiterate is the group assembled you said is the church assembled that's almost redundant is the assembly assembled i'm right. just being cute here with that word yeah, i want to yeah. stress that word again <laughs> yeah and, right. and in fact paul does that back in verse 23 if the whole assembly be assembled Together, exactly. Or the whole church be assembled together. Yeah. So emphasis yeah. on that. By the way, we've got a state uh, uh, request here from viewer asking us to repeat what scripture we'll be reading from, since she sometimes has difficulty understanding what we're saying. That's a good reminder because uh, uh, sometimes you hear some numbers and you didn't quite 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 catch it. So let's just mention some of the key texts we've talked about today for anybody that want to look those up. Uh, the passage that showed that the elder and they're the ones that shepherd and they are uh, the overseers. That was Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Acts 20, starting in verse 17. The discussion about where you see ecclesia used of different ways, that was at the end of Acts 19. And the text that Stephen just uh, went to for us, that was 1 Corinthians 14. Um, in verse like latter part of 33, 34, 35, 36 through uh, 38. That's a good one. Thank you, audience, because sometimes we're, we're talking quickly. And it's, this happens to me all the time. Somebody leaves a message on my phone and they'll leave their number. <laughs> It'll be, yeah, give me a call, 789-743-2617. What? <laughs> it's, it's, they remember the number, they say it quickly it's helpful to stop and repeat it. So we'll try to do a better job of repeating it. Thank you for that. And remind, and remind us again us if we're not. 
Okay, so that took care of that question. Now, what about, do we have time to do this last segment? I think we can do the last segment. you have time to do this, the new segment, I should say? Go for it. Uh, All right, so a few the, minutes here. Yeah, the new segment is, uh, we're, we're calling it, um, is it in the Bible or not? And that's, that. And if, we, if we can come up with a better title for that, hey, maybe we ought to ask the audience if they have better titles, for that, if they understand what the segment's about, if they want to come up with another title for it. But basically what it is, sometimes we'll hear about myths, or sometimes we'll hear about things that aren't myths, but are just an understanding that this is said in the Bible. And I'll give you an example. Let's just get into the first one. Scott, it says in the Bible that the three wise men visited the baby Jesus in the manger. So let's throw it out to our audience, and we'll play in the Bible or not. Yeah, we, we've all seen it. You've, you see the manger scene, and there's Joseph, Mary, there's a sheep. Uh, you have Jesus laying in the manger uh, there at a stable, and you see some shepherds, and you see the three wise men. So there's our question, audience. In the Bible or not, the three wise men came and visited Jesus as he lay in the manger. That's a good question. We'll see here. Let's figure out something else to talk about for a minute while we see if uh, somebody comes in with an answer for that. Okay, we had another question. Um, We've already got some answers. Good, I'm glad. Let's get to it. Ah. Yeah, it's a uh, listener says wise men visited three gifts visited in the house. So let's take a look at the text and see if if our uh, uh, audience member is right. While you're looking up the text, others others said no. Two others said no. (laughs) (laughs) They cut to the chase. Janet and Jenny. No. where is the only, does the Bible talk about wise men visiting? Yeah, Matthew chapter 2. Is there any other chapter that talks about the wise men visiting? I don't think so. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So everything the Bible says about the wise men visiting is in Matthew 2. So, Drew or Stephen, why don't you take us through that real quick? Now, after Jesus, starting in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them, and assembling, oh, there's that word again, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. And so as it was written, let me skip down here. Then and we're in Matthew 2, audience, by the way, Matthew 2. Matthew 2. Now I'm, I'm picking up in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the, wise, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And trying to think, we need to go away further than that. Uh, okay. Yeah. In verse um, 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11 and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary at, at his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening his, their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being okay. warned in a dream not to return, they went a different way. So, all right. So, it, it, this is a really good example 
Uh, you guys, I'm sure, have noticed this type of thing as well when, you're, when we're teaching people, and we need to do it in our own minds as well. All of us have heard things that are in the Bible, and we've also heard people talk about the Bible. And for a lot of people, it's kind of like wheats and tares. And lots of times we don't know, did the preacher say that, or was there a Bible verse for that? Because it gets all convoluted. And part of what Bible study is, is separating out the stuff. Oh, wait, that wasn't actually in the Bible. This is what was in the Bible. So let's start with what was in the Bible there. Were there wise men? Yes. Do they come to see young Jesus? Yes. Yes. Uh, Did they bring, are there three types of gifts that are mentioned? Yeah. Yes. So that's in the Bible. What was not in the Bible? How many wise men? Could it have been three? Yep, could have been. Could one guy have brought gold? Yep. One guy brought frankincense? Yep. One guy brought myrrh? Yep. yep. Could it be two wise men that brought frankincense, myrrh, and gold? Yep. Could it have been six wise men? Yeah, it could yep. have been any number. Yeah, we don't know. And does it say they came and saw him laying in the manger? No, it definitely gives them, tells us where, in verse 11, they saw him in a house. In a house. Where did the shepherds, over in Luke 2, where did the shepherds see him? The night they he was saw him in a manger. Yeah, that's, there's, there's no room at the end. They, he gives birth. She gives birth back where the animals are, lays him in the feeding trough, the manger. But here at this point in his young life, he's in a house. And does this appear to be the night he's born? No. It appears to be a bit later because they're, they're in the house. I mean, we know that he was born, and then they laid him in a manger. And isn't it true that Jesus born, was born? And that was the night he was born. But look at verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he was mocked to the wise men, because instead of the wise men going back and telling him where he was, it looked like Drew mentioned God told him to get out a different way and don't, or to leave and not go back to Herod. Herod was angry, and he sent forth and slew all the male children that were in Bethlehem and in all the borders thereof. What age? Two years old or under. Now, did he just pick some random number? Look what the text says. No, because it says according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Yeah. He killed the children from two years old and under according to the time which he had exactly learned from the wise men. This is not when Jesus is, is uh, an hour or two old and laid in that manger. This is when he's a little older. Could be as much as two years old. Yeah. So what you're saying is that that statement or the picture that we see on the front of church, in front of in front of uh, church buildings, if I can use the term. Oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Little shock shock right now. Yeah, I saw that in front of a group of people. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Where we always see those scenes with the three wise men. So that that's embedded from us when we're little kids. And let's just throw one other thing in here, by the way. Uh, did it happen here? This is not the night he's born, but on the night he is born in Luke 2, did it happen to mention in Luke 2 that he was born on December 25th? Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. That was a, 
that was a Roman holiday that they celebrated. And later people, uh, some people decided to attach the birth of Christ to this time of, of holiday. And, and so what we need to do, and there's more important things, by the way, that affect how we act and behave and walk before God than just whether or not we understand the, where the wise men were, how many there were. But there's something really important here, and it's learning to pay attention to the difference between what we've heard and what had actually been written. So you have heard that it was said three wise men showed up at the manger on December 25th. Here's what it said. I like the way you hiding your face. God, that was good. I've got one of those faces that it helps sometimes when you hide it. So it's a, it's a learned skill. I think our time is up. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions today. Yeah, we, we didn't, we're not going to get to the last two that we were trying to get to today, but we'll save them for next week. But I do want people to bring in more questions, and don't wait for the show. You can go to BibleQuest.tv, fill out the form, ask a question, or a myth. And maybe we can add that myth that you've heard or something about the Bible that's maybe not in the Bible, and we'll put it into this new segment in the Bible. And next week, a couple of questions that we got that we'll be addressing, we'll hope to get to next week, are has it has to do with does it matter who did the baptism does it matter who baptized you in some circumstances and we'll get more into that next week that's great <laughs> all right everybody. thank you everybody have a good week look forward to seeing you all next week thank you drew thanks steven bye-bye